Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. We hope you enjoy this message by our guest speaker. Glad you're here with us today. We are in the midst of a series called Ridiculous Grace, and we're taking a look at grace. Grace is a word that we use quite often, and, and at times we use it so much it begins to lose its meaning. So we are just taking different looks and trying to understand what fully grace is. Two weeks ago, Brian started us off, and he talked to us about, about just ridiculous grace and how ridiculous grace leads us towards gratitude. And last week, Steve talked to us about ridiculous grace, how ridiculous grace is collectivistic, it's, general, it's generous, and it's thoughtful. It sees the unwanted. But that how also, he warned us, ridiculous grace can be offensive. It will offend our belief that being fair is more important than being generous. Today we're looking at at this ridiculous grace and how with this grace you were sought after. With this ridiculous grace you have been sought after. This is where we're headed today. For 12 years I lived in the Middle East with my family and though we loved that culture, though we loved being there, there was part of it also that we would oftentimes miss our home culture. We would miss America. And so oftentimes we would look for different things that we could do that would just remind us of our roots, of our home. And and one of those things that we would do is after living in in, in this little sleepy city for a while, they opened this Burger King. Pretty great when they open a Burger King in the Middle East. And so we, we just knew that the, the way restaurants work in the Middle East is often they're really awesome for six to eight months, and then they go downhill really quick. And so we knew we had this window to really experience Burger King, to really get the full culture before like it just would go downhill. So we started to make it a pattern that probably every third Friday, we'd, we'd head over to Burger King as a family. It was one of the only places that was open when the mosque was going. And so we started going to Burger King. And this was no normal Burger King. This was like, Burger King America. You're talking Captain America on the wall, NFL logo on the wall, NASCAR pictures on the wall. This was like American culture Burger King. So we started going there, and it was during that time that we realized something about my oldest son. He, he was a pretty particular dude. He was only four at the time, and he's not really like this anymore, but he was a particular dude. And we realized that every time he got his little burger, he would open it up, and on the inside of the wrapper was a circle the same size as the burger. See, that circle is there so that the employee puts it in the right place and they wrap it properly, but he thought that circle was there for him. And so he would take a bite of his burger, he would put that burger perfectly back in the circle, <laughs> He would chew, he'd pick it up, he'd take another bite, he'd put it back in the circle. And we noticed this pattern. So we started to kind of just play with him a little bit because we wanted to break that kind of rigid thought. So we started to distract him. The girl, the older girls would distract him and I'd move the burger a little bit to the side of the circle. And he would be just, he would put it back in the middle of the circle, then pick it up, take a bite, put it down. They'd distract him. We'd move it over by the fries, way out of the circle. Frustration. I mean, this became a a thing in our family. Every time we would do it, we would take him close to tears out of frustration almost because we're awesome parents. And we just really like, it became this thing. But what I found fascinating was my son's, his innate ability to say, this is the way it is. I can't deviate from that. It was there. It was so clearly there. And today we're looking at these three parables and the target audience that Christ tells these parables to are the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are a lot like my son was back when he was four. 
See, things needed to be a certain way. The structures were there, and to deviate from those structures was not good. It brought frustration to them. They would get very frustrated if somebody started to tear down those structures. These Pharisees were a lot like my Arab neighbors and friends as well. See, these, these friends of mine, they would go to the mosque often five times a day, and they would go, and they would do their prayers, and they would sit there, and they would declare that God is just, and that they know that they've got something coming from them. But at the same time, they're sitting there basically saying, look at me, Lord. Look at what I'm doing, God. I'm trying to do well. Would you notice me so that I can earn some mercy in your eyes? And the Pharisees were similar to that. They were going there. It was their ability to follow the rules that would allow them to earn mercy. This was their posture. They were doing the best that they knew how to do in their current structure. They flaunted it a bit. Yes, they had a religious spirit, a controlling nature. They tried to accumulate power and would do anything to keep that power. That is why Christ was always running into conflict with them. But at the heart of it was something that said, we need to follow these rules. We need it to be this way so that we can earn some mercy from our God. Earn being the key word. Christ's message didn't sit well with them because he was installing this new framework, this new way of the way things would be done. The burger won't be sitting in the perfect circle anymore. Worse, the power structures, the religious cultural communities, they're shifting. Everything is changing. He is coming. Of course, the resistance was strong. And as we get ready to look at these three parables today, you need to understand that this is a scandalous chapter of Scripture. It, th these three parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the prodigal son, they are intense. They are so intense. These, these, this, these parables, this is one of the main reasons why just a couple weeks later they're yelling, crucify him, crucify him. What Christ is doing here. It, it, He's changing everything. In verses one and two of Luke 15, and we'll turn there in a minute, we see this audience. It says this, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. You see, Christ is journeying towards Jerusalem where his crucifixion will happen. And along the way, he's stopping in village after village. And he is ministering to the sick, to the lost. And he's also tearing down the way things used to be. He's, he's, he's tearing down the world as though the Pharisees thought it should be. And he is reconstructing it the way it was intended to be. And because of that, he is a threat. Why? Because Jesus here is redefining repentance. You see, the Pharisees with the, this religious spirit, they're living these lives where the pressure is on them. The pressure is on them to follow the law and do good works. It was their responsibility. In the Old Testament, a lot of times the structure was for the, it was the responsibility of the individual to turn from sin and towards God. But Christ comes and he starts to redefine this process. He's redefining it. And yes, repentance still means change of mind, change of heart, change of behavior. But through these parables that we're going to look at today, he is saying that it is God's joy to find you. It is God's responsibility to find, to, to find the lost and to restore them. Jesus is redefining repentance to mean accepting being found. It is Christ that finds us, Christ that restores us. It is our responsibility once he finds us to admit that we have been found and then to repent. 
It is Jesus Christ's faithfulness, his grace that initiates and saves. Our good works don't lead to us being found. It cannot be earned. Ephesians 2 confirms this. Ephesians 2 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so that none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. This is ridiculous grace. And to the Pharisees, it was beyond offensive. So what does Jesus do to address these religious leaders? He confronts them. He confronts them with these three parables that we read in Luke 15. And with that, he provides a new framework. A new framework that says, you were sought after. And friends, we are still sought after. We are still living in this new framework that he has set up. Let's look at these parables together. Luke 15. If you have your pew Bible, those are on, it's on page 869. Page 869. For a lot of us, these, parallel, these parables are pretty, pretty familiar. We know the story of the lost sheep. The lost sheep, you have the shepherd. He has 100 sheep, and one of them wanders off. He leaves the 99 to go chase after the one. And when he finds that one sheep, he throws it on his shoulders, and he returns, and he gathers his neighbors together, and they rejoice that what was lost was found. And Scripture tells us that there's a parallel celebration that goes on. It tells us that there is more joy in heaven over one sinner than repents than over the 99 righteous who remain. And then there's the parable of the lost coin. And here we have this woman. Chances are she's wearing kind of a, a, a headdress that has these coins. These coins represent her dowry. They are valuable to her, and she has lost one of them. They're almost her identity. She's lost one. So she searches her whole place. She tears, this is important. She tears the place apart until she finds it. And when she finds it, there is great rejoicing. She brings the neighbors in. And Scripture, again, shows us a parallel to what happens in the heavenlies. That there is incredible joy when someone is lost and then is found. And then the story of the prodigal son. This, this intense story where this father who has two sons, his younger son asks him for a portion of the inheritance while the father is still alive. Culturally so shameful. And yet the father gives it to him. And we know the story. The son goes off. The word prodigal means lavish. And the son goes off and lives lavishly and he squanders all of his inheritance. In fact, he hits rock bottom. He squanders all his money and then a famine hits and he is starving. We know it's bad. He's a Jew working on a pig farm. It has gotten bad for him. He's to the point where the pods that he's feeding the pigs look attractive to him. That's how hungry he is. So he comes to his senses and he says, I need to return home. Maybe I'll experience some level of mercy. Maybe I'll get an actual meal. I mean, my dad's servants at least get to eat a little bit of real food. And so he goes back. And we pick the story up in Luke 15, verse 20. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. 
His son said to the father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But this father said to his servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we ask you today to make your word come even more alive in our hearts. May it become even more alive. We ask for your spirit's presence to remain here. We pray that you would bring conviction and comfort and that you would release new joy in this room today. Lord, we want to continue to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Three things that I want you to take from this passage about about ridiculous grace. The first is this. Ridiculous grace gives priority to lost people. Ridiculous grace gives priority to lost people. These first two parables, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, they're parallel and pretty easy to understand. A pursuer goes after something that's been lost, finds it and returns. He's filled with incredible joy. They spread the news so others will join in the celebration. Great value is put on what is lost. Greater even than what the number, the greater number of, that remains in the safe, in the cozy. Greater value is put on the one that is lost than on the 99 that are righteous. I still remember reading this this parable as a kid. It used to bother me so much. This irresponsible shepherd. He's got this one dumb sheep that runs away. And he's got 99 good sheep. 99 obedient sheep. And what does he do? He goes after the one stupid sheep and leaves the 99 good sheep there and goes after the one. How irresponsible. What if a lion comes and kills these other 99? I read the story of Daniel when, or David when he was a shepherd boy. I know what they face. What if these, how dumb is he? Then he's left with one dumb sheep and no good sheep. And this story used to bother me so much, but that's exactly the point. That is exactly the point. The lavish pursuit to leave the 99 and go after the one. This concept that those who are not followers of God, this was not that they were worthy, that they were important. This is not what the Jews, the pharisaical leaders of the day wanted to hear. They wanted to keep things the way they were, that it was the good, the righteous, the people of a specific bloodline, the people of a specific lineage that were the ones who should experience grace. They were the ones that should matter most. But as we heard it spoken last week, grace often will will offend our sense of superiority. Grace It will disturb us and prompt us to try to dictate to God how and to whom grace is dispensed. And this was happening with the Pharisees. They were offended. But grace is not about fairness. It's about a God searching and saying to us, those who are in the community of faith, I'm glad you're here. I pursued you and I found you and I'm still pursuing you. But little one, please Please understand that I'm also pursuing others. They are lost and they matter to me. You were the one I once searched for, but you've been found. Join me in pursuing these others and celebrate with me when they are found. We look at this idea that Christ ate with sinners 
And at least in theory, I think many of us love the fact that he came for the sick. We love the fact that he ate with the outcasts. We love the fact that he broke the rules of culture and social and religious class. We love that he was this inclusive figure that brought discomfort and threat to the pharisaical leaders. They had their frameworks. And just, he, he, just imagine these poor Pharisees, the messiness of what if these lost people do come to faith? How do we have to incorporate them into our religious structures that we don't want to change? He was disrupt, disrupting it all because these lost people were a priority. Before I move on from this point, can I just stop and ask you a question? Let me ask us a question, because this is a question I find myself having to ask myself often. Do we carry any resentment that we have been found, and now much of the focus isn't on us, the disciples of Christ, but rather on those who haven't been found? Do we need to confess anything? Are we able to celebrate that we are part of a church that really does care about this city, and we put resources and time prioritizing the lost people? Are we a people that are able to celebrate that? Is there any resentment that has, that has crept in? If there is this week, I encourage you to deal with that. I encourage you to take the mind of Christ because, friends, all humankind has been created in his image and he wants them all to be found. Ridiculous grace gives priority to lost people and it also prompts relentless pursuit. That's our second point. Ridiculous grace prompts relentless pursuit pursuit, relentless pursuit. Philip Yancey says this, in my lifelong study of the Bible, I have looked for an overarching theme, a summary statement of the whole sprawling book, what it's about. I've settled on this. God gets his family back. From the first book to the last, the Bible tells of wayward children and the tortuous lengths to which God will go to bring them home. Indeed, the entire biblical drama ends with a huge family reunion in the book of Revelation. Friends, lavish resources, lavish resources and time are spent on the pursuit. I love hearing the stories of how God pursues people and goes to great lengths to do so. My wife Jess and I just returned from an overseas trip, and we had the privilege of taking some incredible RTI students, 11 of them, to France for 10 days. It was part of a class, and we went to France because there's some incredible ministries that are happening there. France is an incredibly dark place. A lot of people don't realize it. And we wanted to go see some of these international churches, and the diaspora is happening. People are being drawn from all nations to France. And movements are happening. And some of these international workers that we partner with were there. And so we took the students there and we got to interview a lot of international workers about calling and what they're seeing and struggles in ministry and witness different things that are going on. There's one guy that we got to interview. His name is Larry. And Larry's, Larry's just an awesome guy. Larry's a retired military guy and he finished his service in the military. And he, and he finishes and he says, I've got this incredible retirement plan now. I'm financially free. Lord, what do you want me to do? So he goes to northern Iraq and he starts to pastor an international church that we started there years ago. He finished there and then he went and started working with his wife with Syrian refugees in the north of Jordan. And now he's a pastor in Toulouse International Church in a city in France. And God is using him. But I love, we asked him some questions. What do you love most about what you do? And his response grabbed me because he said, I love the fact that God is the one that does all of it. He goes, I'm so humbled because God is the one that pursues people. And I just try to walk in obedience. 
He said, more than once what has happened is I stand at the door and I welcome everyone who walks in, just like I did to you tonight. And they walk in and I shake their hands and I give them a kiss. But he goes, there's something incredible when one of them stops and says, I know you. You were in my dream last night and you gave me the good news. Can you imagine the anticipation of that hearer when they sit through that service and they know God is pursuing them. God is speaking to them. Ridiculous grace leads to relentless pursuit. Look at the imagery. Jesus wants to get this message through. So he tries, he just, he goes after these Pharisees. He wakes them up to the way things are being done. And look at the imagery he uses for God as a pursuer. In the culture of that day, he uses a lowly shepherd. God the pursuer, a lowly shepherd. God the pursuer, a woman. That's pretty scandalous in that day. God the pursuer, a father who's been shamed by his son who receives his son back without any punishment, who honestly demonstrates what in that culture would be more of a motherly heart, offensive. These these parables, they are ridiculous. They are culturally inappropriate. But Christ uses this to demonstrate that people are being sought after and that he is a God of relentless pursuit. See, we see this in the coin story. We see this with the parable of the sheep, but oftentimes we miss this in the parable of the prodigal son. Oftentimes we see that as a separate story, but they're made to be one. And we look at that as it was the son that returned. And yes, the son did return. He hit rock bottom and he came and he returned. But that's not the key of the story. I want us to look at the picture of this this father for a minute. You see, We want to pray that the prodigals return. And yes, this son hit rock bottom. He hit a moment of desperation. He decided to return. But what he would have been returning to was not a restored relationship with his father. What he would have been returning to was being cut off and banished from the community. He would have returned to the community surrounding him, protecting the father from receiving any more shame. And he would have gone through an incredible ceremony that said, you are dead to us. Having been privileged to live in the Middle East for over a decade in this collectivistic, community-based society, this shame and honor society, it's given me new insights into Scripture, especially some of these parables that Christ tells. There's a scholar named Dr. Kenneth Bailey, and he grew up in the Middle East and just stayed there, understands the culture and the history, and he teaches in a lot of the seminaries throughout the Middle East. And he's written extensively on this story of the prodigal son, and he describes what would have happened if the father hadn't intervened, he says he would have gone through a ceremony called the kazah. And what would have happened is the community would have gathered around, they would have held the son there, they would have punished him for what he had done. And what they do is they, it's a public ceremony where they take a clay pot, they fill it with beans, they burn the beans, no idea why they do this. They burn the beans, they bring the pot in front of the son, they break it at his feet, and they say, you are dead to us, you have been cut off. The son was coming back to face his just punishment at the hand of the community. That's what he was returning to. But the cutting off never happens. The cutting off doesn't happen. The son is spared of the shame, the retribution, and the punishment that the community should have poured upon him. Why? Because the father pursued. Because the father intervenes. He gets to the son. He reconciles, restores him. He pours out ridiculous grace upon him. And he says to the community, I got to him first. We're good. Leave him alone. 
The father intervenes. The, the key to the story is the father looking, expecting the return of the son. The key to the story is the father culturally just doing something incredibly inappropriate, picking up his robe and running as fast as he could. You would never see a man run in this culture. But he runs and he intercepts the son. He intercepts the son before the community can get to him and give him what he, ju what he just really should deserve. He doesn't even give the son a chance to beg for mercy. He receives him fully. The father intercepts him and he lavishes this grace upon him. He restores his son. He gives him the best robe. He gives him feet. He gives shoes for his feet. He gives him a ring that allows him to transact business in this, in this community that, that wanted to shame him and cut him off. There is no cutting off ceremony. Grace has found the prodigal. Grace has found the prodigal. Because this grace comes with a relentless pursuit. Friends, many of us in this room have experienced this ridiculous grace. I don't know how he relentlessly pursued you. But this morning, I pray that you would realize, maybe it was through a generational blessing. Generation after generation have been called out by him. That is, that's relentless. Maybe it's through other people that have walked with you through difficult times until you experience his grace. Maybe the words, the living and active words of scripture came alive to you and you understood it. I don't know how he called you. Maybe it was through healing. Maybe it was through a dream. I don't know how he relentlessly pursued you. But today I invite you to recognize that he found you. Remember that and celebrate that today. It's that celebration point that is the third, the third thing I want you to take from this today. Ridiculous grace embraced deserves great celebration. I love this. You see, we get to join in the pursuit and we get to join in the celebration when lost people are found. I'm an East Coaster and, and a football fan. I grew up a Philadelphia Eagles fan. I apologize. I also lived in Boston, which means I became loyal to another team whose name I will not bring here out of respect for you. But this past week, something incredible happened among the Philadelphia Eagles. One of their players, wide receiver Marcus Johnson, posted this picture on social media. This is him on game day getting baptized. This is his teammates gathering around him. And I don't know why when I saw this picture, it made me rejoice. It made me want to celebrate. I was like, I wish I could be there. This is so amazing. Maybe it's because it was on a game day and this was a big game he was ready to play. I don't know. But heaven invaded and everyone stopped. They stopped preparing for the game. They stopped stretching. They stopped doing whatever they had to do to prepare for Carolina. And they stopped and they did this. I love what he posted on Instagram. First time being baptized. Corporate worship is a beautiful thing. Cleansed and reborn in Jesus' name. Bullhorn emoji. <laughs> Hashtag wholeheartedly. Celebration. We see it in each of these parables. Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. When the woman finds her coin, she gathers her neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven in the presence of God's angels when one sinner repents. The prodigal son story. Kill the fattened calf. I love verse 24. So the party began. So the party began. Honestly, there are a few things that get me emotional the way baptisms and people pounding ribbons into this cross do. 
I feel the presence of the pursuing spirit and people receiving his grace and it drives me to just tear up. Friends, ridiculous grace embraced deserves great celebration. Today, I wanna conclude by giving you a challenge. In a minute here, the worship team is gonna come out and we have time. We're gonna have an extended time of worship as we end today. You see, I want first, I want, I want to encourage you to experience new depths of grace. You see, a lot of us, I don't think we understand the depth of which what we've been saved from. Some of you in this room, you sinned a little in your life before you were saved. Some of you, you sinned a lot. But you know what it says in Ephesians 1? It says, we were dead in our sins. And there's no like little bit dead, very dead, kind of dead. Dead is dead. And so we all, we all were dead before we experienced this grace. This quote, take, take a look at this quote. Grace sought after you and your experience of it depends on the depth of your realization of how much you need it. This morning, would you realize how much you needed it? And would you experience new depths of grace as we worship together? Second thing I wanna challenge you to do. Many of you simply hearing the story of the prodigal son, your heart is heavy. Your heart's heavy. And so I wanna ask you this question. Who is your heart heavy for? Is your heart heavy for a prodigal? Maybe it's a son or a daughter, a cousin, grandkids, close friends. I don't know who it is. The prodigals are many. And you probably are feeling some grief for this person that once was walking with Christ and now no longer is. If you're a parent, you're probably asking yourself, what else could I have done? If it was a spouse, you're saying, when we got married, they were coming to church, they were following Christ, and now I don't know what to do. And so this morning, we want to sit in that grief a little bit. Because we're instructed to mourn with those who mourn. And so we're going to do that. But we're not just going to stay there. At the same time, at the same time, we're also going to remember that we have this pursuing father who's looking at the horizon for the prodigals that want to be found again. He's looking. And I believe that, that, that God is, is rekindling our expectation. I believe that he is restoring hope for those that were followers of Christ. He wants them to return. And so what we're going to ask you to do this morning is if your heart is heavy for a prodigal, would you take a piece of paper? Would you write the name of that prodigal down? And as we worship here in a moment, would you hold that up? Would you pray for that person as we worship? Would you worship over that person? And if you feel led to come and put it in one of these buckets up front, there's buckets in the back in the balcony. Our intercessors this week, we're gonna pray for those people. We're not gonna post these names anywhere. This is just for our intercessors because we believe God is doing something new and calling people back. The final thing that I want to ask you to do today is some of you here, you haven't experienced this grace that we're talking about. And I want you to know if your heart is being stirred and you haven't experienced it yet, it's there for the taking today. His relentless pursuit is coming for you. You're here today. And so I want to invite you to join us today. There, you could take that step and start a new relationship with Christ today. I want to take you through a, a, a process of admitting, believing, and confessing who Christ is. And if that is you, if your heart is burning, if you feel God is calling you out, his pursuit is there, and you're giving up running, you're willing to admit that you need to be found, then would you pray this with me? You can pray it out loud. You can pray it in your heart. You can stand up and shout it. Whatever you feel led to do, but would you pray this with me? 
Jesus, I admit that I have been found because of your grace. And I understand that I am a sinner in need of that grace. And Jesus, I believe that you are God's son whose death and resurrection provides me with access to this ridiculous grace and forgiveness of sins. And Jesus, I confess that you are my leader. I want you and you alone to rule and reign in my life. So spirit, come. I admit that I've been found. I want your grace. I want new life in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Salem Alliance Church is a community of Jesus followers located in downtown Salem, Oregon. And we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. You can view today's entire service online at livestream.com backslash Salem Alliance.